All right. Well, if you want to come grab a seat and open up to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verse 17 and 18. says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of all he created. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for this community, for what you're doing here, Lord, with this new church and the stories that are unfolding, they all happen because of your love. Today, Lord, as we just open your word, we want to just tap into your love for us, that you would speak to our hearts, transform us to be more like you. We love you so much. In your son's name we pray. Amen. In 1888, Alfred Nobel woke up, grabbed the newspaper, opened it up to the obituaries, and lo and behold, his name was there read the obituary of himself. And it turns out that he had a brother who had passed away the day before in Russia. And his family was kind of famous, and so they had a mistake thinking that he was the one that died. And so he had kind of an opportunity that not many people have to read your own obituary and see what the public thinks about you. But what he read was actually devastating. And as he read through the obituary, These words were written about him. Finally, the merchant of death is dead. Kind of a life-changing experience to read your obituary and hear what people have to say about you. Alfred Nobel uh, is very famous, very wealthy, comes from a family. Uh, You may have heard of them before. He was the inventor of dynamite. He was a scientist, an inventor, and uh, his desire was to make this world a better place. Uh, He had the intent of helping miners uh, mine better by creating uh, a a safe way to use hydroglycerin. He he had a desire to help build roads, to build bridges, and wanted to create a tool that was safe for that to happen. And as he was able to package such an explosive thing into something like a stick of dynamite, uh, as you would expect, the world started to use it and to leverage it in many different ways. His family became... Uh, very famous and very wealthy uh, for developing weapons for some of the great powers in Europe. Uh, His brother um, was a weapons developer, and uh, and, and Alfred was as well. Um, And in the midst of them creating all of these inventions, they also, uh, their inventions were used to kind of uh, uh, fuel the arms race in Europe, as Europe in the late 1800s started to kind of create tension getting ready for the world wars to break out. And Alfred Nobel, with his inventions, as he was reading his obituary, the merchant of death is dead. At that moment, he realized, with all of the things that I've wanted to create to make this world a better place, uh, I'm not perceived that way. These things that I wanted to do for the common good are being perceived uh, to bring about destruction. So he decided to do something to change his reputation. And as he he died, he ended up leaving his entire estate uh, to to a prize that would go out to different people who 
who made the world a better place. You've heard of the Nobel Peace Prize. His great estate given uh, to, to, be, to be given as this gift uh, for people who are committed to making the world a better place. And now today, most of us know of Alfred Nobel because of the Nobel Peace Prize. Very uh, few of us would know that he's the one that invented dynamite, and probably none of us would call him the merchant of death. A stick of dynamite, something that's not good nor evil, but something that can be used and leveraged for all sorts of different things in this world. I tell this story today because we're in the middle of a, 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 well, end of a series called Desert City Originals. And leading up to Easter, we went through the Gospel of John, uh, went through an eight-week series in John. Next week, we're starting a series called Go Love. It's going to be all about how we can serve our city. Uh, it's going to be based on 1 John 1, or uh, 1 John, the whole letter. And we're going to have a bunch of different opportunities uh, for the church to serve with some of our partner churches. Uh, so we'll have sign-ups that are starting next week. There's a schedule in the back that you can see today, different opportunities to serve in, this, in the city. And we had kind of this three-week gap. So decided when I have kind of like a three-week gap, instead of doing a whole new series, we do these things called originals. And uh, so the first week we talked about parenting. Last week we talked about baptism. And today the topic I want to talk about is money. Super fun topic. <laughs> Everyone's like, yes, if you were new today, welcome to Desert City Church. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's something that I don't really like to talk about, as you know. And we don't talk about often. Um, and, and, but it's something that we need to talk about. Because I believe <clears throat> that money is something like a stick of dynamite. There's nothing good or evil about money. But it has the potential to be very powerful. There's nothing uh, inherently uh, good or evil about money, but the way that we manage it matters. It could blow up in our face. It could be something that we use to make the world a better place. And how we handle it is, I believe, uh, a huge, huge issue in our culture. And when I want to talk about it, my, my fear as a pastor is one, oh, you're going to think that we always talk about money. Um, and, and we don't, but we need to because it's like a stick of dynamite. And two, I don't want to be misunderstood as we talk about money. Um, it, I, I don't want to use this to like leverage it in a way for, for us to get more money as a church. That would be great if that happened, but that's not the reason uh, for, for talking about it. And in fact, I, I feel like with, with who we are as a church plant three years in, we're, we're in a very strong financial position, um, the strongest that we've been yet. And so I, I don't want to be misunderstood as we talk about it. But what I want to talk about money is because I, I think it's something that's heavy on my heart because I think that we live in a culture that has a dysfunctional relationship with money. And I say that because I think my wife and I have a dysfunctional relationship with money. We're very much a product of this culture. I was born in 1982, which means I'm kind of a millennial. Not really, kind of a millennial. And go to college. It's the, the largest class that has ever attended college. College prices skyrocket. My generation, we get out of college with more debt than any generation ever before us. More people hit the workforce at the same time than ever before, so there's less jobs available. Uh, it's easier to borrow money than ever before. My wife and I got married in 2004, and then we bought a house in 2006, which is actually the worst year in the history of the universe to buy a house. And we start our marriage off, and before you know it, it's like, wop, 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 wop. We're staring up this cliff that's like this 10-year journey to figure out how to get out of it. It's insane. 
we just get sucked into this culture that has this dysfunctional relationship with money. And it's something that is just heavy on our hearts, and it's something that, that it could be something that's so good, and yet at the same time could be something that is so destructive in our culture. I was reading a, an article in the Harvard Business Review back in 2010. It said that 76% of Americans see money as the main source of stress in their life. You might feel that too. You might have experienced the stress of finances. The other night, Marcy and I were out at dinner and uh, kind of reflecting on um, where we're at in life right now. And it's, it's a really fun time for me. Um, just graduated from you know, seminary. Uh, so we were kind of reflecting all the things that we were thankful for. Like this huge hurdle's over. got through this goal of you know, getting through the next kind of step in education. And I'm done. And I, and I feel great about that. And uh, our marriage feels so great and blessed. And we're so in love. And it's super sappy. And we have our health. And uh, we love our kids. We have four of them, and it's, they're just such a blessing. There's so much work, but it's just so much fun. Part of this new church community, and it's, it's literally the, my favorite community that I've ever been a part of. I'm so excited for what God is doing here. And we're just kind of reflecting, and then I just said, but I just wish we were in a better spot financially. And she's like, well, why do you have to bring that up? And it's like... <laughs> Everything else is great, but I'm like, if I could just have this one thing, if I could just have more and abundance and better, and, and if, if, I could, if we could just be in a better spot, then everything would be great. She's like, look around. We are so stinking blessed. But that's like the one thing I fixate on. So much of our culture, this is this leading cause of stress and anxiety and worry, and that's okay. Like We're, we're designed as humans to feel that. And you might feel that stress, that stress as well. According to the, the National Financial Wellbeing Survey, 43% of Americans are struggling just to pay bills. Just to pay bills. Last year, CBS Money Watch uh, came out with a report that said 57% of Americans don't have enough cash on hand to absorb a $500 expense without going into debt. We all know that Dave Ramsey uh, and his Financial Peace University has a lot of statistics. He often talks about the average household in the U.S. has about $7,000 of credit card debt. For some of you, you hear that number and you think, oh, I'm doing okay. For others of you, you might be like, I'm in good company. It's something that is, that is heavy on the hearts of our culture. And it's something that, uh, if we're not careful, we have MAD, M-A-D, money, anxiety, disorder. Money is not something that's good or evil, yet it's the number one cause of divorce in our culture. It's just a stick of dynamite. It can be used for something good, and it could blow up in our faces. And so when I talk about it today, my hope is that wherever you're at in your journey, um, this source of so much stress and anxiety, if you're a part of this community, if uh, whatever you are in life, but that our hope is that this source of stress and anxiety would actually be a source of peace. It would be a source of joy. And that's possible. That's possible. That this thing that weighs so heavy on our heart could be something that actually is life-giving. And that's my hope for our community, that we would be a community that has peace and joy 
with something that's so heavy in our culture. And I think that, that that's God's hope too. I think that God, God has designed us to be stewards of all sorts of these gifts that he's given us. And he wants us to live at peace with these gifts, peace with the world around us and with joy. To see something as money not as something as evil, but as something that can be used for the good. And so I just kind of want to talk through kind of this plan, this God's plan for, for how money should behave. And here's the thing about money, like a stick of dynamite, is we can tell it how to behave. It's not like a child that if we, you know, have a four-year-old named Ezra and you're trying to get him to do something, he just doesn't listen. You tell him to go here and he goes there. You tell him to go to bed and he gets up. And, but money is something that we actually can have control over in our lives. And yet for most of us, it's something that controls us. And it's something that God desires for us to have peace. So I want to start with this James passage, James chapter 1. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like the shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all that he created. I think this is a great verse to start because it acknowledges this fact that God is the giver of all gifts. God is, God is the supplier, the provider of all that we have. It was like something that you just kind of understand. Yes, God is in control. He controls all of this. This became very true to me uh, in my life uh, a while back. And I remember growing up, and you, when, you, when you're growing up, and you get through you know, school, and you go and you get your first job. I remember my dad always telling me, you'll never forget the day you receive your first paycheck from the job that you're working for your career. So not just like a... Like, a job that you're doing, like a summer job in high school or college, but your first career paycheck, you'll never forget that day. And I remember getting that paycheck thinking, I get paid this much, and this is like every week or every other week, like this is, it was just this joyful experience that I know that many of you have felt that the first time you receive that paycheck. You never forget that day. But what he didn't tell me is there's another day that you never forget is if you ever go through a transition or a loss of a job. And that paycheck stops coming. And you're so used to this rhythm of getting paid, and all of a sudden it's Friday, and that paycheck doesn't come. That's a day you don't forget. And I remember as Marcy and I had gone through a transition a, a couple years ago, kind of like moving jobs, and gotten to this place where we don't get that rhythm, that paycheck. And you see like the savings account dwindle, and the next week, and the next week all of a sudden it becomes very scary. That is a memory I will not forget. And then when the paycheck comes back, that same feeling, goodness, provision, something that's been supplied. I remember thinking how grateful I was that, that this moment where it was deposited into my account, stopping and giving thanks, that God is the giver of all good gifts. And I think it's interesting that we talk about giving, saying grace and giving thanks before we eat a meal. We stop and we pause and we say, Lord, thank you. Thank you for this food that you've provided. Blessed to our bodies. But how often do we stop when we receive this paycheck that we've worked hard for 
But do we stop and say, God, thank you. Thank you. For me, it was something that once it was removed, I realized how much I took it for granted. And I come to this spot where it's deposited into my account, and I say, Lord, thank you. There's this gratefulness, there's this acknowledgement that all of this is from God, the giver of all good gifts. Then James goes on to say, he chose to give us birth, to give us life, the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all that he created. A kind of first fruits of all that he created. This word first fruits is this loaded word as James writes. It's this word that is found throughout the scripture and especially in the Old Testament. There's this principle of first fruits. And it's interesting that James uses it in the context of God and his relationship with us and all of creation. That we would be a type of first fruits. This principle of the first fruits is found throughout the Old Testament. One of the first time it appears, it appears in Exodus. As God's people are saved from slavery in Egypt. As they move out of Egypt, across the Red Sea, come into the wilderness, spend time in the wilderness, eventually go into the promised land. They're told to give the first fruits of all that they produce back to God. And they're told to do this in a way because it acknowledges that all of these gifts are from God. And they do it in the context of, tell your children about this, why we give this offering. Because you were once slaves in Egypt, and God has given you life. God has set you free. You cried out for years, and you've been freed. So we honor God with our first fruits. We're reminded of his faithfulness to us. So we're faithful back to him. Proverbs talks about this idea of honoring God with his first fruits. It says in Proverbs 3, 9 and 10, Honor the Lord with your wealth, the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing. Your vats will brim over with new wine. New wine overflowing sounds good to me. But this idea of honoring God with our first fruits, this concept of it all comes from God, it's this reminder that is of him, and so we honor him with it. We talk about kind of our, maybe our financial, maybe financial clock. When we receive this gift, something that Marcy and I have realized is that there's a certain time that starts ticking on it every time we receive, you know, a paycheck. And one thing that we found is as we, as we acknowledge that this is a gift from God, God is kind of at the top, the starting point of this clock. And I think I've got a pic, oh yes, this is my very uh, great skills of creating a clock. But, but God is at the top, and there's this idea of this first fruits that goes back to him. This acknowledgement that because of your, your faithfulness to us, I do this out of faithfulness to you. I give back to you. Malachi 3.10 actually says this, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and test me in this, God says. See that I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. We hear this and we're reminded of this acknowledgement and this principle of first fruits is this, that God honors us when we honor him. So we have this language of the tithe that we do as a church and here's one thing I've realized about this. If you grew up in church, this makes sense. If you aren't like, used to church, you hear this number and it's like, what in the world? That is crazy. But there's this acknowledgement of I'm giving my first fruits back to God. And this first fruits language is 
this idea of a tithe is developed in the Old Testament. And as this language was put together in the Old Testament, we have to remember that the religious culture is much different back then. There's all these pagan religions that require this unbelievable amount that you give to sacrifice to the gods to make them happy, and then they send the rain, and then your crops grow. And if there's a drought in the land, you haven't given enough, so you give more of your crops to appease the gods so that they'll send rain. And if rain doesn't come, you haven't given enough, so you give more, and all of a sudden you realize there's this downward cycle where you're trying to appease the gods, and you're having less to do so with. And as God's people in the Old Testament started to relate to God and how they related to their neighbors, they were given these, these principles in place. And we hear them in our modern day, and we think, wow, that's a lot of money. That's a huge percentage of your salary. But for them, this would have been like, you only have to do this. You don't have to be like these other religions that have this oppressive percentage. It would have been good news to them. We find out in the Old Testament, there's these three types of tithes that were given from God's people. The first, the first is found in Numbers 18. It's called the Lord's Tithe. It was this foundational tithe that went to support and perpetuate just the local ministry of the church, the tabernacle at the time, the synagogue. This just went in. It was called the Levite's Tithe because it was used to build up God's house. There was another tithe, though, that after that was called the festival tithe. This was used to support annual celebrations and festivals and feasting where families would come together with friends and neighbors and they would have a party. And they would give their percentage that would go to this festival, this celebration, and the whole community would benefit from it. And then there was this third tithe, this, this offering that was for the poor. They didn't have a federal government, and so the people of Israel would come together and take care of the poor among them. And then there was this other offering where they were told that when you're plowing your fields to, to not go to the corners of your crops, but to leave those for the alien and the foreigner and the poor among you. Looking at these rules, you see that it's like over 25% of an income that was given back to God. And we think, well, that's crazy. But the principle of the first fruits isn't necessarily about that percentage of 10 and 10. And there's something going on in their hearts where they're saying, Lord, we're giving back to you, and we want our gifts to be used to make this world a better place. This principle has been carried through the Old Testament into the New Testament. The early church would, would carry kind of as like a benchmark of this 10% that we honor God with our first fruits, giving back to him what he's done for us. We find this happening in the early church. There's this interesting letter that Paul writes to the church in Corinth. Corinth is this city that would be similar to like Las Vegas here. I mean, it's kind of like a, a wild town, but it's also very wealthy. And he's writing to these new Christians in Corinth that aren't really using their resources to honor God at all. And he's talking about this church that's in Macedonia, this church that is very poor, that is doing great things. And he talks about how this church in Macedonia, he had to beg them to stop giving because they're, they're giving so much of themselves to the world to transform the world. And we see that there's this generosity principle of first fruit that continues in the New Testament. By the fourth century, the Roman emperor, Julian, had caught kind of wind of the, the church that was growing and expanding. And he says these words of the church. Nothing has contributed to the progress of the superstition of the Christians as their charity to strangers. The Galileans provide not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. 
these early churches would come together, they would pool their resources, and they would transform the world around them. They would see these as gifts that could be used for the good of the world. And it was transformative. Their generosity was transformative. And when we understand all of that God has given us is his in the first place, we honor God. We honor God with this principle of first fruits. A couple of things that it does for us is it, it releases the power and control of money on our lives. It's one of those strange things that, that as, we, as we give and as we're generous, we're losing something, but something inside of us grows and expands. It's more blessed to give than receive. And when we honor God with the first fruits, the causes of the kingdom, we give back to him with what he's given to us. But it also does something else. It empowers a community of believers to be transformative in this world. It's something that's countercultural, and yet there's something very radical and transformative about this idea of honoring God with our first fruits. And I think that as God sees that, he honors us as well. And I don't know how that math works, and I don't think it's something that it always comes back in financial blessing. I kind of hope for the new wine myself, but I don't know how that works, but I know that it works. That there's this God who sees us, and he sees our hearts, and he honors that. This principle of first fruits. As we move down the clock, the second thing that I think is very radical in our culture, to take a percentage of our money and to pay ourselves, to pay ourselves, to give to ourself. And I feel like there's something in, in my life where Marcy and I are like, oh, we're not going to, you know, we're going to honor God with our finances, but we can't give to ourselves. That's too hard. The second thing of saying, I'm going to store up margin in my life. I have a mentor that was telling me about kind of churches that have margin. And, and one thing he told me is, like, even us as a church plan is, when you don't have mar margin in your life, you don't have mission for very long. And I think that's true of us individually, too. Where there's no margin, this burden and stress overtakes us. It's something that withers our soul. And God has this desire for us to have margin. He says this, in Proverbs 6, 6 and 8. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, and yet it stores its provisions in summer and it gathers its food at harvest. This wisdom from the Old Testament talking about this idea of creating this margin. This isn't talking about hoarding in a way that robs other people from you know, simply eating. Like Jesus has warnings for that. This is talking about this idea of planning and looking ahead. One of the most amazing stories in the Old Testament is when Joseph is sold into slavery into Egypt. And as he's in Egypt, he's told by God to start storing up, start filling the storehouses with grain because a famine's coming. And as that famine hits the entire known world, Joseph is able to feed people who are starving. And it becomes this thing that is used for God's glory. But Joseph is able to feed those because he has planned ahead. He has created margin in his storehouses. 
to stop and to say, I'm going to honor God, but then also protect myself. Uh, Tim and Tyler, the other pastors on staff, are in the process of ordination right now. And there's something that's really cool about our denomination. We have, uh, we have this pension plan for retirement, and we're all assigned this financial planner. So we've been kind of like meeting, and they're getting into the system now. And um, we've all had like these separate meetings where we're talking about our financial position. And um, you know, for me as a, as a pastor, like I met with him and start looking at my future, I start to realize like the way that I'm saving and my, I'm on track, I'm on track to, to retire at 72 years old. My financial planner said, 72 is a great golf score, not, not a great score for, for life, right? Um, and, and like looking at, you know, how I save and things that I need to like move around to be better at that. And then working with Tyler and Tim and, and Tyler brought up this story about saving. He goes, I remember when I was in high school, I think it was my math teacher, came to class and he said, I'm going to tell you something today that is the most important thing I'll tell you all year. This will be life changing. And if you remember anything about this class, remember this. And he started teaching him about a 401k. And he said, go home and beg your parents to open one up. If you're 17, start putting $20 in it a month. By the time you're 65 with compound interest, you'll have over $3 million. And Tyler was like, I left that class. Like, my mind was blown. I was like, this is amazing. I can't, get wait. I can't wait to get home and tell my parents we have to open this up. And we're like, dude, that's amazing. Did you do it? He's like, I got home and forgot about it. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a godly principle to, to say I'm going to, to give and create margin in my life. Like an ant that soars for the winter. To say, I'm going to be intentional with this. As I go down this clock with my paycheck to say, I need to create margin. This is something that I need to commit to. I believe there's something super powerful when that happens. And then finally, as we move through this clock, I think I clocked out. (laughs) Living expenses at the end. And I hear this is the thing that I think has been so hard for us, is that we usually start going counterclockwise. We start with our living expenses, and then, like, whatever's left over, we might give ourselves or we might give to God. And, and that's something that's just natural for us to do. And, uh, and, and, and I understand that. Um, and I also know that when we, when we do that, we are, we are human. And there's certain limitations that when we place in our life, we're able to, 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 to live with inside those limitations. So a couple numbers um, that have been, I think, helpful for me to see. We go the next, the 10, okay, these are a couple of rules that I think have been put in place. You might look at me and say these are crazy. But you might look at these and say There's, these are some good disciplines to have. The first is this 10, 5, 85, 10, 10, 80, 10, 15, and 75. I remember my dad growing up always lived by this 10, 10, 80 rule. This honoring God with my first fruits, giving to myself, and living off the 80%. I remember like hearing that thinking like I could never like my I could never do that with 80%. And one of the things that he would tell me is that it's amazing that we we live in this great country. Wealthiest country on earth and we live in this great city like Phoenix. And we get caught up in this culture of dysfunctional relationship with money. And think that I have to spend every single dollar I make on food on consuming. But like, way we like hit the brakes here 
and stop? What if we actually created a budget and told us where the money is, where the money should go? When we create a budget, we can live within the limitations, having financial peace. And I thought, budgets sound terrible. I'm a free spirit. And God has got a grace. I like living in freedom. Here's one thing I found, though. When I don't budget, I have no freedom. The more structure, the more regulations I put on myself, the more discipline I have with my living expenses, the more freedom I have in life. And that's really hard to do, extremely challenging. The other thing that I've found about this, I think, is the highest value for money management. It's this word humility. This word humility. It's only when I allow someone like my dad to, to speak into my life, talking about managing money, that I'm able to receive it. Arrogant people, arrogant people despise wisdom. They despise God's plan. They despise allowing other people to speak into their life. Humble people admit and acknowledge that there's wisdom in living with a structure where we honor God, we take care of ourselves, and then we tell our money what to do. Humble people invite accountability into their financial world. Humble people admit when they need help. Um, for those of you uh, who know me, I look different today. I have glasses on. And I grew up having 20-20 vision. I prided myself on it. I would always say, I don't have the best teeth in the world, but I have good eyes. And so I, when I kind of noticed my vision starting to fade, and boy, did it fade. Without glasses, man, I'm like Magoo. I just had no idea. Um, I kept putting off, like, getting glasses. Part of it's because I have... Uh, surfer's eye, I told you a little bit about it. It's the surgery I have to have done. I didn't want the eye doctors looking at my eyes because they're going to make me go in for surgery. But part of it is I was just too prideful. Like, I didn't want to wear glasses. And my wife kept saying, you need to go in, you need to go in. You're driving, scaring the children. You need to go in. <laughs> Finally go in, have an eye exam. First eye exam in 17 years. And I find out that I'm nearsighted in one eye and farsighted in the other eye. And my doctor's like, wow, that's pretty rare. Um, you definitely need glasses. And I was like, you know, like for reading? He's like, for always. <laughs> <laughs> and so I go through this process, whole new world to me. Glasses come yesterday. And uh, they come in the, wet, the mail, the Warby Parkers, you know, really cool glasses, maybe not. I'm a nerd. Um, but I put them on. And some of you have experienced this when you have bad vision and you put on glasses, all of a sudden the world jumps out at you. Everything is so clear. I told Marcy, I was driving, I would see like mosquitoes flying <laughs> at 60 miles an hour. There's a mosquito. Birds were coming at me like it was a 3D movie. All of a sudden everything was so clear. And I think back to like, why, why did I wait so long? What was I thinking? I was too busy. I was moving too fast. I was too prideful. And now that I've 
come to this moment where I've allowed something to help me. It's like, I can see your faces. Maybe it's not a good thing as I'm talking about money. <laughs> but it's just completely changed this last few days, the last day, just seeing the world with clarity. I think it's the same thing with our finances. There's this humility that comes that says, I need accountability. I need things to regulate my giving. I need to honor God. And I don't know what it is that stops us. Maybe if you're like me, it's because you're too busy and this is too painful to do. My hope is that whatever your background is, whatever your job is, that the life that you live, you would experience peace and finances. That if this money is a stick of dynamite, it wouldn't be something that blows up in your face. It would be something that you used to mine. It would be something that you used to build new roads with. The other thing that I know is that we all come from these different backgrounds financially. Some of us come from good families that have uh, very functional uh, healthy systems. Some of us come from dysfunctional families. Um, some of us were given a lot to start life with. Some of us were, were not given anything. Some of us were starting behind this huge pile of debt as we entered into adulthood. Um, I know that there's no silver bullet that just resets everything. I wish there was a button that we could push and we could all just start over. There's no like easy way to do this. It takes hard work and discipline and intentionality and sacrifice. And at the same time, what we find is that we honor God with all of our resources. Not just the first fruits, not just what we give to ourselves, but all 100% we say to God, I want to honor you with how I live my life here on earth. I want to be a good steward of what you've given me. We're going to get to the end of our life. And we're not going to have probably the opportunity to read our obituary. But I think that would be fascinating to see what would the world say about what we did with the resources we were given. But I do know that someday we will stand before God. And this God who is full of grace and justice will look at us and say, what did you do with the resources I gave you? Were you a good steward? Did you honor me? Did you make the world a better place? I want to be a part of a community that has stories like what we're seeing with Dang's family right now. I want to be a part of a community that says we could be generous because we were good stewards and it set us free. I'm not sure where you're at today. This might be like elementary level or this might be like groundbreaking. This might be like something that is heavy and oppressive. That's not our intent. But wherever you are today, my hope is that with finances, you would experience these words. That you'd be generous and free, at peace, empowering, and life-giving. That you would see that your life has a purpose to be good stewards of what God's given you. That you would consider ways that you would honor God, that you would protect yourself, create margin, that you would use the rest of it in a way that honors God enjoying life, enjoying uh, the benefits that this world has, but at the same time making the world a better place. Tim's going to come back and uh, close us with a song. And 
And today as we kind of finish this original series, my thought is just, uh, I'd like to just kind of sit and reflect on, on the words of this song. Our men's group is going through a, a book right now called Disciplines of a Godly Man. And the author says this when it comes to our money. God can have our money and not our hearts. That's very possible too. We can honor God or give to God and at the same time do it in a way that's legalistic or do it in a way that is entitled. He says God can have our money and not have our hearts, but he cannot have our hearts without the money. Jesus says that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And this ultimately comes down to an issue of the heart. God doesn't need your money, but God invites you to order your life in a way that honors him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. For this wisdom that's ancient and old. And Lord, I acknowledge that I, I live in this world that I've been sucked into this culture that just has a dysfunctional relationship with resources. We need grace. At the same time, Lord, we see how you give us all of these gifts in a way that can make the world better. That we can tell our money to behave in certain ways. We could use it in a way that doesn't allow it to corrupt our hearts. That we'd have the insight into managing it in a way that doesn't divide our marriages. Lord, we just want to give you authority over all of our lives. That you would speak to us today, Lord, to hear the truth of your word. To not believe lies from Satan. Lord, that we would worship you with our very lives. We ask your blessing on us today, Lord. In your son's name. We close each service with a time of communion. A communion for us is this sacred act of remembrance. It's this reminder that God has done this work in this world. This work on the cross. That all of the ways that we fall short, all the ways that we've messed up, God makes us righteous through this work of the cross. There's this bread that's taken that represents his body. There's this blood that represents the blood that's poured out. Because of that, there's a great freedom. My hope today, as we come to communion, we will be reminded of the generosity of our Lord who gave himself for us. We're going to take a few moments to move to communion when you're ready, and then I'll, I'll close this with the benediction.